All right, church, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We are going to be continuing our time today looking at now the work of Jesus Christ. As we've been continuing and working through this series, church, on the, His person and His work, and I hope and trust and we are confident that you have been encouraged in the faith, looking at who Christ is and what He has done. And we're going to continue looking at to what He has done for us, specifically today looking at His work on the cross, the work of His atonement. Brethren, let us go ahead and read together verse 21. I want to use this verse as a, as a platform to, to launch into our study today. Verse 21, this is the angel speaking to Joseph about the birth of Jesus Christ. This is what the angel of the Lord says. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Brethren, the reality is that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is, is undoubtedly the, the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. The saving work of Jesus Christ is utterly important for us. Without the cross, we have no salvation. We have no forgiveness. And we know, we know that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God to salvation. Church, we know that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. It is, it is foolish to the world. You go out and you preach a crucified Messiah, a crucified Jew on a cross, and you will be laughed at, you will be mocked at. But let me tell you, it is utterly important for us to know the importance of the work of Christ in the atonement. And in, and in this passage, the angel is declaring emphatically to us who Jesus is. You shall call His name Jesus, who this Son of Mary is, and His purpose in His coming, for He will save His people from their sins. It's important for us to know, brethren, that in Christ, all of God's saving promises in the Old Testament become a reality in Him. He has come to save. I want you to notice a couple of things as we, as we begin to, to dive into this text. This text personally has been a great encouragement to me in my own life. Th this very passage, that Jesus Christ came to save. He came to save. He will save. Now the naming of Jesus here is, is, is important. His name, Jesus, is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Joshua. Yeshua. Does anyone know what that means? Yeah, Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. 
That's what the name means. He is coming to save. And what, the, and what the angel here is declaring to Joseph is that Mary's son is going to be the one that brings God's salvation, his promised salvation into reality, into time, into space now at this important time. And we see that this is central. This is central to his coming. Christ did not come to merely teach us how to be a good person. He did not come to, to, to be a good moral teacher. Christ came to save his people. Now, when you think of this, this, this purpose for Christ coming into the world, when you actually look at the breadth of Scripture, actually a lot that has to say to the reason why Christ came into the world. We talked about it uh, the other week, that Christ came into the world to fulfill the law. We talk about, or we hear in Scripture, that Christ came to preach. He came to preach the gospel. But what I want us to understand is also Christ came into the world to save sinners. And we think of texts like this. We think of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, where Paul says that it's a trustworthy saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to what? To save sinners. You may think of 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that Jesus came to, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came, he says in Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to give it as a ransom for many, to save. We see the parallel in Matthew 20, 28. You read in John chapter 3, verse 17, that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. He came to save. We see this also in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And I want you, church, to be encouraged here to notice the, the certainty of these statements that He came to do it, church. Jesus came to actually save. He did not come to try to save. Or to make a way that if sinners would just come through this door, then they would be saved. He actually came to do it. He actually came to save you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, He came to save you. And that ought to be encouraging for us. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1, where, where the Father chooses a people. He elects a people. The Son comes and saves that people. He redeems them. And the Spirit of God applies the work of Christ to those people. He draws them to Christ. He seals them. We see it also in John chapter 6. Whip over there with me real quick. John chapter 6. The certainty that He has come to save. John chapter 6, starting in verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what is that will, Jesus? Well, he tells us, verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will, I will raise Him up on the last day. Church, all that the Father has given to the Son, He will lose none. He will lose no one. 
Jesus will save his people. He will save them. And the scope here is, is grand. You know, oftentimes we, 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 get this, we get this idea that the Father chose like four people in, in, in all of creation. Me, Nick, Aaron, and like maybe a couple other people. You know, we get this idea that God just chose maybe just a few people. It was just a small number. That's not it, folks. That's not, that's, that's not the testimony of Scripture. We read in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, that God, that Christ has redeemed a people by his own blood from every tongue, tribe, people, nation, and language. Everywhere, church. He has come to save. Don't get this idea that God just saves just a few amount of people. He's come to save the world. And he's reconciling the world to himself. All things, as Colossians says, in heaven and on earth. We ought to have confidence in the gospel that Christ redeemed and saves a lot. Myriads of myriads, a number that no one can, can count, church. Believe that. Don't shy away from the doctrine of election and the doctrine of, of, of the definite atonement of Christ as if he saves just a handful of people. God is gracious. He will be worshipped. He will save. And maybe he saved just this church. You know, we could, we, we could also think that way. Just us in this room, just us 20 people, no one listens to the gospel. No one opens up the door for us. No one goes, listen to Smith's. You know, no one's saving their babies. No one will listen. Listen, we ought to have confidence that God has saved a people. And all of them, church, will come. They will. They will come. He will accomplish salvation. But let me ask you this question. He will save His people from their sins. The question now is how? How is Christ going to save His people from their sins? This is extremely important for us. We have a, uh, a foundational tension, as we're going to see, in the Scriptures. And the tension is this. It's, it's, it's a gospel tension that we need to be clear about in our preaching. We need to be clear about in our evangelism. We need to be clear about to our witness in the world. And this is, this is it. This is, this is the, the problem of forgiveness, as some theologians call it. How can a holy, righteous God forgive wicked, sinful men? How can He do that? How can a holy, righteous God forgive wicked sinners like you and I? How could He do that? Listen to some of these texts in, in, in Scripture. You can go there if you want. Exodus chapter 34. How, how, how is this accomplished? Exodus chapter 34. Listen to this. Starting in verse 6. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed. This, this, is, this is God proclaiming who he is. The Lord, the Lord. Listen, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Praise the Lord. But who will by no means clear the guilty? So you see the problem here. How could God be a forgiving God, 
full of steadfast love, but by no means clearing the guilty. You ever thought about that? You ever asked yourself that question? Flip over to me to Proverbs chapter 17. We see it here as well. Proverbs chapter 17. This is, this is the tension we find in Scripture. 17.15. Very important passage for us. Proverbs 17.15. He, listen to this, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Brethren, whoever looks at the wicked and their wicked, abominable deeds, and says, oh, it's okay, you're clear to go. Is an abomination in the Lord's sight. You see the issue here. You see the problem here. He who justifies declares to be righteous the wicked, and he who condemns the righteous also, are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And then you read things like this in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, that God justifies the ungodly. Huh? How, how is that possible? That, that's the tension we see in the gospel. How can a holy, righteous God forgive wicked sinners? How can this be? He is just. And in His righteousness and justice, He must satisfy His own justice. If anyone is to be forgiven, He will not, in the name of love, refuse justice. Brethren, sin just can't be swept under the rug. God can't just look at our sin and wink at it as if it didn't happen. That would not make God just. That would not make Him good. That would not make Him righteous if He just looked at us and said, Oh, it's okay, I'll just sweep your sin under the rug and wink at it. No big deal. Try better next time. You can enter into glory. Sin must be judged. And the penalty of sin is what? Death. That's right. This is where the work of Christ as high priest is extremely important for us, church. A couple weeks ago, a couple weeks back, Aaron preached on, on uh, the threefold office of Christ, of, of, of prophet, priest, and king. And in his sermon, he talked more on, on Christ as priest in terms of him being the priest judge and coming and guarding and keeping the temple and how that relates to us. And what I want to deal with today is, is another aspect of, of his work as priest and, how it, and his work as high priest as it relates to the cross. Because Christ's work as priest and his work on the cross cannot be separated. They go together. And, I, and it's my hope to, to, to show you this as we, as we work through this. Now, we have to ask a question. Christ and his work as high priest and his work on the cross are intricately connected for us. Now, what is the function of the high priest? Well, flip with me over real quick to Hebrews chapter 5. We, we, we get a good summary here of the Old Testament priestly office and, and what they did and what their function, what their function was. Look at, look at Hebrews 5, starting in verse 1. We get, we get a nice little summary here that, that we'll work with. For every high priest... 
chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So we see three things happening here. The high priest first is chosen by God. He is appointed by God. He does not appoint himself. He is appointed by God to do what? To act on behalf of men in relation to God. The high priest and all priests mediate between a holy God and sinful men. He's the mediator. The high priest mediates. And also what he does is he offers sacrifices for sins. Now, there's a few things that I want, that I want you to know that are important for us understanding the work as high priest. It's important to know a few things. First of all, that the priests performed their work for a particular people. They performed their work for a particular people. Nowhere in the Old Testament do you see the high priest mediating universally for everybody. He mediates, he mediates for a particular people, God's people. Also, it's important that for us to understand that the priest, as they went in and they applied the blood of the atoning sacrifice on behalf of the people, that it was actually effectual. There was actually a change in the way that God uh, dealt with His people. It was effectual. There was, no, there was no separation between the provision of the sacrifice and the application of it. It was provided for and it was applied. It was effectual. That priest went in to uh, make the sacrifice and applied it to the people. It changed the way that God related to them. The sacrifice of the priest satisfied the wrath and judgment of God, though it was temporary, and we're going to look at that. That's what they did. Now, this work is absolutely necessary. And I want to give you a few reasons why. The priestly office and this function of, of offering sacrifices and mediating is absolutely necessary. First, because we have sinned. We've sinned. And the penalty of sin is death. We hear it in Genesis chapter 2. tells Adam, Adam, the day you eat of this, what, what will happen? You will surely die. We read it in Ezekiel 18. The soul that sins shall die. We hear it in the New Testament as well. Romans 6.23, we know that verse. For the wages of sin is death. Church, we ought not think lightly of sin. Sin entered the world and brings death. It's death. It's not natural. This work of the high priest to mediate for us is absolutely necessary to bring us and reconcile us back to God. It's also necessary because forgiveness can only come if God provides a substitute. There must be a substitute for us. Go, go back to Genesis chapter 3 real quick. I, I wanted to show you something here. And, you know, I, I've, I'm always encouraged to hear Aaron preach. And so I thought, you know what, let's, let's, let's bring him back to Genesis and show him right in the beginning. He's, he's, he's rubbing off on me. No, but I want you to be encouraged here. 
because this really, we find it in, in, in very seed form right here in Genesis chapter 3. Look at what happens. Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. They hide themselves. Their, their, their eyes are open. Look at, look at verse 7. And the eyes of them are both open. Genesis chapter 3, this is describing the, the fall. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Brethren, Adam and Eve are trying in and of themselves to clothe themselves of their shame and of their guilt. That is folly and foolish. But then look at what we see God doing in His grace and in His mercy. Look at verse 20. This is, this is after God pronounces the curses. And then the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And if you're not careful, you just read right over that. But I want you to understand something. What, what has occurred here? Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves. They tried to cover their own shame, their own guilt. This is a clear picture of, of man's vain attempt and self-righteousness trying to clothe himself. But what do we see? We see God doing what? God clothes them. He covers their guilt. He covers the shame. And how does he do that? Brethren, with a substitute. He kills an animal. Adam and Eve deserve to die. God kills that substitute in their place and covers them. And we see here in a very small seed form what is going to be a true reality to the greater sacrifice of Christ. And we see this begin to develop throughout the Old Testament, finding its pinnacle in the sacrifices of the Old Testament with, with, with the priests and, and, and the Levites and the Day of Atonement. Now, we've talked about the Day of Atonement, and, and I want to talk about a few things here, but this, this is the pinnacle. This is the pinnacle of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, where one day out of the year, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the people. Now, where is the Day of Atonement talked about in Scripture? Anyone know? Where is that? That's right. What, what chapter? Lydia, do you know what chapter? Lydia, do you know what chapter? Remember? What was that? You forgot? It's okay. 18, 19, 20, something like that. No. <laughs> it's uh, 16. So go there real quick. This is it. And let me just give a, uh, a, a side note here. Church, it's extremely important for us to be reading all of Scripture, the full revelation of God. Leviticus is important for us to understand. We need to see, we need to see what the shadows that, that uh, Hebrews 10 talked about, what they were, because they all pointed to Christ. Now, let's go to the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16. And one thing you'll notice if you read Leviticus is God cares a lot about holiness and sin. And But what you see in the Day of Atonement here is a couple of things. I want to read a few verses and I want to make some comments here. This is important for us. When we think of the work of the high priest, what he did once a year is foundational for us to know and understand the work of Christ. Look at what the priest does, verses 1, 2, and 3. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of his two sons. When they drew near 
before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and the ram for a burnt offering. Now let's go down to verse 15. I want to encourage you just to go back and read this entire chapter and the whole book for that matter and the whole Bible. But <laughs> let's go to verses 15 and 16. Then he, the high priest, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. So he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. Now go to verse 33, at the, the last two verses here. This is the high priest. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you. That atonement may be made for all or for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, I want you to understand a few things about the Day of Atonement. Five things, really quickly here. I want you to understand that this only happened one time a year. Once a year. One person was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. You had the sanctuary, you had the, the outer court, the inner court, and then you had the, the, the inner or the holies, and then the Holy of Holies. The, the inside there, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, with the cherubim. That's where God dwelt. One time a year, brethren, the priest went in. Once a year. This teaches us what's going on here is extremely serious. What is extremely serious. Number two, that the priest goes in and he doesn't go in empty-handed. He goes in with the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the sin offering. He goes in with the blood of the sacrifice. The third thing to understand is that this is done every single year. Repeatedly, that's important. It's done every year for the sins of the people. It's a repeated sacrifice. I want you to understand that. It's going to be important when we get to Hebrews 10. Also, we didn't read this, but it's in verses, um, what is it here? 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. There's these two goats, and these are important. And on these two goats, what the priest does is he lays his hands, he casts lots for the, for the two goats. He, one lives and one is kept alive. The one that is living, the high priest lays his hands on the head of that goat and confesses the sins of all the people, himself, his house, and the whole people of Israel, transferring the sins of the people onto that animal, symbolically, of course. And they, they send that animal away. Out, of, out into the wilderness, out of the camp, to be gone. 
This is a picture of a big fancy word called expiation, that God wipes our sins away. He cleanses them. He removes our sin. As we hear in the Psalms, as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. That's a picture of what's going on. The sin's being removed. It's being wiped away. And then the other goat is the one for the sin offering, the substitute, the one that is slayed for the sins of the people, representing propitiation. It is to satisfy God's wrath in the sin offering. So you have those two things going on with those two goats. Extremely important. And just something else very basic for us to understand in this day especially is that it's central to all of it, brethren, is substitution. Substitution. The animals take the place of the sinner. The thing being sacrificed takes the place of the sinner. It is a substitute. We have to understand that. That was foundational to the entire Levitical sacrificial system. It was all about the substitute. And we, and we learn this. We learn this from the, the, the whole system in the Old Testament. And it was a reminder to the people of the seriousness of sin and its punishment. Every violation of that Mosaic covenant had a requirement of a substitutionary sacrifice. You sinned, you had to have a substitute. It was serious, and its punishment was death. Could you imagine? See, we don't do this today. We don't, we, don't, we don't sacrifice animals. We don't kill animals. Every time there was a sin, they had to go and get an animal and give it to the priest and have him slice its throat. And they'd be standing there looking at this animal, a spotless, no-blemish animal dying, its life, blood flowing out. And they would be reminded of the seriousness and punishment of sin, death. You can imagine the soberness every time an animal was killed. Also, what it taught them was that there was a need for a substitute, as I've been saying. There was a need for this, brethren. They deserved to die, but the animal died instead. And we see also, learning from this, that... There was a great need, folks, for a final sacrifice that would finally come in and deal with sin completely. That there would be final and full forgiveness of sins, no more to be remembered. Because there's a problem with the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it is this, that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Never. It covered sin partially and temporarily, but it could never fully take it away. Why? You got to ask yourself that. Why? Brethren, because man has sinned and man must die. That's why it could never take away sin. Man sinned, man must die die. The Old Testament sacrificial system was inadequate. And I want to show us now, transitioning here to Hebrews chapter 10. And it, this is where I want to camp out for the rest of our time. So 
So we learn some things in the Old Testament about sin, about sacrifice, about, about God's justice, about forgiveness, how this is going to come. We see, we see gospel tension. How is God going to be just and how is he going to justify the sinner? We see the inadequacy of the Day of Atonement. We begin to see it anyway. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, what the author here is doing is, is sharply contrasting that old work and the person and work of Christ and how Christ far exceeds it. How He's a far greater sacrifice. I want to, I want to show this here. He begins in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 10. The first four verses, we're going to see the inadequacy of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Four reasons why the uh, Old Testament sacrificial system was inadequate. First of all, it lacked substance. He says it lacked substance. It was but a shadow. It was but a shadow of the good things to come. Shadows don't have substance. They're shadows. We could see some of the form in a shadow, but there's no substance in it. It points forward to the good things to come, to come, pointing forward to in history. There's something coming. There's someone coming in history. It has no substance. It pointed forward to Christ. Christ is the true form. Christ is the reality. He is the thing that, like Nick talked about, He is the thing that the other thing pointed to. He fulfills it. It had but a shadow. And we see that kind of language also in Colossians chapter 2, talking about the Sabbath and, and all these other things. It was a, but a shadow, but the reality is found in Jesus Christ. Number two, it is repetitive. Look at what He says. He says, uh, it can never by the same sacrifices that are offered, what? Continually. Every year. There's repetition. It never finally arrived at full, complete salvation and forgiveness. It was over and over and over, year after year after year. Otherwise, would they have not have ceased, he says? It's a rhetorical question. We understand that when we repeat things over and over and over again, we recognize it's not complete. You know, you might, you know, think of, uh, you know, someone like an engineer, you know, trying to build a tower. He's got the blueprint. He's writing it out. Not complete. Do over. Writing it out. Nope. Not complete. Do over. Always doing it over and over and over and over again until he has the final product and he's done. Right? And go back and, 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 and keep doing it over and over and over again. No. No, maybe you've written, uh, maybe you've written a love letter. Right? Men. You know, we're trying to write a love letter to that, to that future fiancé, that future, that future wife, and we're writing that nice letter, and like, oh, that's not good. I've got to crumple that one up. Get it out. Repeat it. Got to write a better one. Oh, no, that's not done. Get it out over and over and over until we get that perfect letter, and then we send it off. Do you keep, what do you do? Go back and keep writing letters, the same one over and over again? No, it's done. It's complete. It's finished. Work is done. So we understand that when things are repetitive over and over and over again, we understand that it's not complete. Because if it was complete, we would stop. We would cease. And those are kind of silly reminders, but you, get the, but you get the picture there. It's the repetition. 
Repetitive over and over and over and over again. Also, third thing, there's a constant reminder of sin. Constant reminder of sin. That's what he says here uh, in verse number uh, two. Yes, thank you. Yes, two. Here we go. <laughs> I'm looking at. Uh, uh, I'm looking somewhere else. Otherwise, no, it's two. Otherwise, they would have not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. So there's always a reminder of sin, and this is really the, the weight of the Old Covenant. It's a, it's, a, it's a constant reminder. You're a sinner. Kill the animal. You're a sinner. Kill the animal. You're a sinner. Kill. You're a sinner. Kill. Slice, slice, slice. We take for granted. We take for granted that our sins have been taken care of by Christ. It was always before their eyes. Always. They were always reminded, brethren, all the time. But for us in the new covenant, God says that he will remember our sins no more. No more to be reminded. But we do have a reminder in our time of worship. And what is that? The Lord's Supper. But what are we remembering? Do we, do we come to the table remembering, I'm a wicked sinner, I'm a wicked sinner? Does Jesus say, do this in remembrance of your wickedness, your filth, your sinfulness? No, what does he say? What are we to remember? Him, his work, the grace of the gospel given to us. He takes it away. There's no more remembrance of sins. We're not to remember Christ and his work. We look to him. We look to him. That's what is so encouraging, brethren, about, about the new covenant, about when we come to Christ. There's no more remembrance of sins. It's beautiful. It's glorious. And also, these sins were, or these sacrifices were ineffective. Verse 4, and I've said this before, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. It's ineffective. And I said that before, and I just said this. Why? Because animals can't die and satisfy God's wrath for image bearers, for men, for women. Man has sinned, man must die. And not just any man, we need a perfect man. And this is where, when we're talking about this series of the person and work of Christ, how this has such profound gospel implications. If Christ is not truly man, if he is not truly, 100% truly man, he can't represent us. He can't represent us. We're still dead in our sin. We need another human being to represent human beings. That's why, as in Adam, all die. He's the representative. As in all who are in Christ shall be made alive. He is the second Adam. He is the new head of a new humanity. He is our representative. He must be man. If he's not, then he, then he can't represent us finally and fully. And he also must be God. Why? Because only God can satisfy divine justice. He is truly God. And because he's truly God, he satisfies that wrath. And as man, he represents us. Huge gospel implications here. It's important for us to know that. But ultimately, the Old Testament sacrificial system was ineffective. But, he's going to go on to 
Exalt Christ. Exalt him as the infinitely greater sacrifice. Look at what he says in in verses 5 to 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and burnt offerings, or offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. When Christ came into the world, we have another coming into the world text here. What did he say? What did he come for? He came to do God's will. And what was that will? We read about it in Philippians chapter 2. That will was to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He came to lay down his life for the sheep. Animal sacrifices were not ultimately what God wanted. It was ineffective. But he had a body, a body you prepared for me, Christ says. This speaks to the incarnation. He comes with a body. He comes as as one made qualified to represent us as Redeemer and as our Mediator. And notice, He comes voluntarily. I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. He is ready and willing to offer Himself for His people when there is no other sacrifice, when when, when no other sacrifice will do. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay down on my own accord. He was not coerced to go to the cross. He lovingly and willingly laid down his life for you, church. For you. He comes to do the will of God. And do we not see him in Gethsemane? On his face, crying out to God. Submitting to the Father's will. Not my will, but your will be done in intense stress and agony. Sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Under so much pressure and stress that an angel has to come and strengthen him. What was he in agony over? Was he afraid of getting beat by Romans? Was he he in great distress? To be hung on a cross? No. He was going to the cross to drink the cup of God's wrath for his people. That wrath of God that you and I deserve. He drank it. He drank that bitter cup reserved for me and for you. And he drank it willingly. And as he says here, he came to do the Father's will as our priest. He doesn't offer up an animal. He offers up himself. Once for all, the body given to him, verse 10, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of what? The body of Jesus Christ. Once for all, on that cross, he drank that cup. 
church. He drank your cup of wrath, turned it upside down, and he cried out, It is finished. It is finished. Salvation is complete. Redemption has been accomplished for the people of God. And for our sake, He, God, made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God as our substitute. For in Him, Ephesians chapter 1, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Church, His sacrifice was infinitely greater because as Hebrews 9.26 says, He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. He put it away. He took all of it upon Himself. All of your wicked deeds before a holy God, Christ took upon Himself in our place. Christ is infinitely the greater sacrifice because it takes away sin once for all. And it is an effectual sacrifice. Let's look at verses 11 to 14. He says this, And, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. All those for whom Christ died will be saved, church. There is complete forgiveness for us. And when Christ offered up Himself, what's, what's unique about the work of the priest and the work of Christ after they offered up their sacrifices? What did the priest continue to do? What does He say there? Verse 11. They're standing. They're standing daily. Why are they standing? Because their work's not done. Continually, continually, continually. And in contrast to those priests, what does Christ do when He offers His sacrifice for all time? What does He do? He sits down. He sits down because His work is complete. The salvation of His people has been accomplished. He sits where does he sit? This is important. The right hand of God, the Father, as the priest king, ruling and reigning, as the one who has made atonement for the people. His priestly work is over, but not all of his work is over. What is he doing now? At the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for the saints. As a high priest, he intercedes for us. He speaks to God on our behalf. As the prophet spoke to the people, the priest speaks to God. Christ now in His high priestly work is interceding for us before the Father. And He's also as King, sitting enthroned, ruling and governing the nations until all His enemies are subdued. 
Church, the work is done. You can't add a single thing to the finished work of Christ. We can't satisfy God in any way by our good works. We must humbly come and trust fully in the work of Christ on our behalf. And it must be received by faith. This is why what the Roman Catholics do is an abomination and a stench to the living God. The re-sacrificing of Christ in the Mass every single week. Because His work is not good enough. It must be repeated. It's not biblical. It's done. He has sat down. Salvation has been accomplished. Believe in Him. Look to Him. Trust in Him. Cling to Him. Repent and believe in that work of Christ. And Christians are being perfected, he says in verse 14. He has perfected for all time. He has made us suitable to approach God. We have been made clean. And our acceptance before God is always because of the work of Christ. When you're struggling in your sin, and you're, and you're, and you're dealing with depression and doubt, look to Christ. Look to Him. Your standing before God has nothing to do with your performance. Cling to Christ. Repent and walk in obedience to Him. Believe upon Him. You're accepted because of Him and His work. And the proof that you have been perfected is that you are being sanctified. You see that? It's like, it's like what Nick just said in the Lord's Supper. We don't receive Christ and then just go off willy-nilly sinning by no means. We receive Christ and we continue on in the Christian life. The evidence that we have been perfected by all time by Christ's sacrifice is that we are continuing to be sanctified. We are growing and growing and growing more and more and more into the image of Christ. He has perfected for all time. He will not lose one sheep. That's the effectual sacrifice of Christ. And just as that high priest went into the Holy of Holies and that provision of the sacrifice was applied to the people, so Christ, His sacrifice is applied to His people. He will save His people from their sins. Now, of course, we understand that in time, sinners must be, have the gospel preached to them and they must repent. But just as every single one of you here were at one point not a Christian, heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and, were, and was saved by Christ, he will not leave one sheep out of the fold. He will gather all of them in time. They will come. And that gives us great confidence in the gospel as we go out as a church proclaiming Christ to the world. Now, also, by this death, verse 15, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, and he quotes, what does he quote here? Quotes Jeremiah 31, right? He quotes the new covenant, the one that we read in the, in the, in the Old Testament reading. This is a covenant that I will make with them declare, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, and this is, this is, this is the, the nail in the coffin here. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. 
no more. Christ inaugurates that new covenant by the shedding of his blood. He comes in the Lord's Supper and says, drink, this is my blood. This is my blood in the new covenant. Drink, brethren. Full and complete forgiveness of sins. The promise that God will never call into question the sin of His people. Those who have placed their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. It's here. All the promises from the prophets, and not just Jeremiah, but also Ezekiel and the prophets, that it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's here. Sin is no more. Forgiveness, full and free, complete. This is how God saves. This is how Christ saves His people. This is how, church, as we confessed, I think a very timely confession for us today, this is how God can be just and be the justifier because sin was dealt with. Sin has been punished. It has been it has been. Uh, poured out. Judgment has been served upon the Son in the place of His people. So now God can maintain His justice, His righteousness, and actually forgive sinners because He judged sin in His Son. Now we can be forgiven. And we are. We are. Entrance into that new covenant is through faith and repentance in Christ. And what's extremely encouraging for us is that everyone in this covenant knows Christ. They all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And their lawless deeds are remembered no more. Complete and full forgiveness for the people of God. For you, church. We have to understand as we, as we wrap this up that because of all of this, because of the finished work of Christ, because of Him being the greater sacrifice, effectually securing the salvation of His people, Christ is the only hope for the world. Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there is salvation found in no one else. For there is no, under, no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. He is the only way. Christ is the only hope for the world. We must. We must take this gospel to our neighbor. We must take this good news to our family member, to our city, to the nations. That their only hope to have their sin dealt with is by placing their trust in Jesus Christ. He is the only hope for the world. And we also ought no longer to live for ourselves. Here, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sakes died and was raised. Christ died for you. If you live in Him, you are to live no longer for yourself. No longer for your own plans, your own purposes. You have died in Christ. You now live for Him. He died for you. He took the judgment you deserve. Can we, can we not live for Him? 
I love what Amy Carmichael said, there's no sacrifice too great for Christ. Missionary to India. She saw what Christ did on her behalf and said, there's no sacrifice too great. None. Live for him. Church, do not live for yourself. That is foolish. Live for Christ. You are forgiven. Walk in it. You are forgiven in Christ. Walk in that forgiveness. And of course, church, as we wrap this up, we know that Christ didn't just die on a cross. He didn't just go into the grave. God did not leave him there. He rose again from the dead, conquering the grave, conquering death. And next week, brethren, we're going to hear more about that and why that is utterly important for us as Christians. Let's pray.